Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Burnout. It's been a hot topic lately. The World Health Organization has even deemed it an occupational phenomenon. Overwork, technology, work politics, being underpaid, working in high-stress environments, working in high-impact healthcare environments can all contribute to burnout. My guest today, Dr. Reef Karim, is a leading expert in human behavior. He's dedicated his life to educating, entertaining, and helping people understand themselves better. Dr. Reef is a double board certified psychiatrist, addiction medicine physician, and relationship expert, as well as writer, host, and media personality. He's also spent some time as a stand-up comedian and has starred in some Bollywood movies. He's here today to talk about his experiences with burnout and how he was able to turn himself around creatively. And he's also here to help other people in the healthcare arena do the same. This episode today is brought to you by Trusted Health. And my co-host, Sarah Gray, will be joining us again. And now a word from our sponsor. Trusted Health, a company built by nurses for nurses to understand what opportunities exist and connect to them in the most efficient and transparent way possible. They've replaced the traditional job search and staffing approach with an intelligent matching platform, empowering nurses to discover opportunities that fit their unique experiences, preferences, and goals. Instead of a commission-based recruiter, they use nurse advocates, nurses just like you and some who have even traveled, who work commission-free. Because they're all commission-free, their goal isn't to get nurses into any open jobs. Instead, they focus on connecting each of their nurses to travel assignments they want and supporting them every step of the way, before, during, and after their assignment. Just in case you're wondering, they'll come right out and say it. No, they won't hound you with phone calls and emails about jobs that you're not interested in, just the information you want when you want it. Interested? Check out Trusted Health at www.trustedhealth.com. Fill out some basic information about your preferences and qualifications, and you can get started viewing job matches personalized for you in minutes. Join Trusted. They're not just an agency, they're a movement. And welcome to the show, Dr. Reef Kareem and my co-host Sarah Gray from Trusted Health. Hi, how you doing? Doing great. Happy to be here again. Here we are, episode number two for Trusted Health. So Dr. Reef, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself and tell us how you got into comedy as a psychiatrist. Well, most psychiatrists are probably comedic in one way or another. People either laugh with them or at them. So I think that... uh, the, the whole tie-in between um, the human condition, looking at the human condition, it's not that far apart, psychiatry and comedy. For psychiatry, we're taught to um, analyze 
and assess human behavior to decide, well, is this crazy? Is this not? Is this off? Is this not? And, and, and we have this DSM-5 manual that we're supposed to subscribe to to understand what the human condition is. As a comic, you're in a way a philosopher and you're, you're doing observations and putting in your thoughts and your opinions on something you observed. That's funny. And, and it's still studying the human condition. But instead of diagnosing somebody, you're doing social commentary on, on somebody or on a thing. And I just find the comedic part of life in some ways way more freeing than leading life through guidelines and, uh, and a manual to tell me how I, should, how I should be working and how I shouldn't. I think that's very well put because one of the problems nowadays with medicine is that it's so cookbook. It's not as intuitive as it used to be back in the olden days, but I think it's coming back to that somehow. So how did you get into comedy? So my background is a little diverse. Um, I started out a, a, a complete creative, but I was like an alien in my family. I'm, I'm Indian. Uh, I have a very conservative Indian family. On the day I was born, my dad made an announcement. He was like, everyone gathered on, gathered on. I've decided to be, wait for it, wait for it, a doctor. And then there's like this like entire moment happening, uh, where I, I'm supposed to be a doctor. And then he would creep up to my crib late at night and whisper, doctor, doctor, doctor. And I was dressed up as a different type of doctor. You're 30 now, you get to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. You know, every, every <laughs> birthday I got, I didn't get Legos, I got a medical gift. So it was like <laughs> constant brainwashing and like that stereotype about Indians being, you know, oh, you must be a doctor or an IT consultant. It's totally true because <laughs> in this like immigrant following, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's stability, it's safety. And I think this very much ties into what you guys are talking about here in that, um, yes, it's on the surface, it's very stable. Uh, it's secure. You, it, it, it's almost like linear. You do this much training and this much education, and thus you will get this job and hopefully earn this kind of income. And then everyone will live happily ever after because you did that. But what, I think these parents who do this or whoever decides to go into the field don't understand when you're in medicine, whether you're a nurse or you're a physician or you're on the front lines in some way, is you're dealing with sickness and you're dealing with pathology and you're dealing with the intersection of finance, business, um, insurance, and the human condition. And now technology. Um, and technology, yep. I was gonna say that next. <laughs> um, in a way that A, we're not necessarily trained for, but B, when I look at somebody, including myself, I look at them from, yes, a biological perspective. What is your blood count? What is happening with your temperature? What, you know, all of the biological aspects of how we look at somebody when we're measuring vital signs or doing labs or whatever. But I also look at them from a psychological perspective, which is, you know, additionally my training. I'll get into kind of my training in a second. But 
I look at them from an energetic perspective as well. Now, oh, I like that. I, I, yeah. I am Indian. I was raised Sufi. So apparently I have instant spiritual street cred because. <laughs> but, but I've gone out of my way to learn as much as I can about energetic medicine because it is a huge missing piece of, um, you know, uh, of the way we look at the human condition and especially in medicine, uh, because I can tell you right now. So my background is I, I was raised, you know, to be this doctor. I'm a total creative and a total performer, but at some point it got so intense with my family and this, you know, conflict that, uh, my parents had an intervention on me and, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. and, and, I, and I wasn't doing drugs. Uh, it was an Indian career intervention where they hired a drug interventionist because the assumption- Wait a minute. Say that again. They hired a- They hired a drug interventionist because they assumed I must be on drugs if I didn't want to go to medical school. So, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And so I, at some point, I won't get into the whole thing, but, but at the very end, my dad said this. He said, if you don't go to medical school- you will be like a little island in the middle of the ocean. There's nothing on this island. No mother, no father, no money, no love, no nothing. And the big waves are crashing on this island over and over and over. And every single day, the island sinks just a little bit at a time. Little bit. <laughs> One day, there is no island. So like my dad was basically saying I would cease to exist in this family and, and, and in, in my just experience as a person on this earth, if I didn't go to medical school. So I was like, oh man, I guess I gotta go to medical school. So I went in not wanting to go. I thought it was interesting, but I also saw it as a handoff for my parents. It's like in, in a lot of families, our parents dictate who we are you know, we come in, in my opinion, we come in with a soul into this world and then we're into a body, we're, we're given to a family, our parents then do their best to raise us in the way they think we should be raised. And at some point we go off and find ourselves and discover ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I saw medicine for my parents as like a baton in like a, a race, like a four person race. They're like, oh, we raised him to get him to this point. Now let's hand him off to the medical industry and they'll govern him and control him. <laughs> and I was like, God, I don't want to do that. So, you know, finally they, they had this intervention. I said, fine. I did an internal, I went to med school. I did an internal medicine internship, uh, a residency in psychiatry, a fellowship in addiction medicine. Um, I had a special concentration on neuroscience and I did some work in specialty training and relationships. So I, I looked at every aspect of brain body behavior. And how do we connect between that? Um, and and I'll just say one more thing. The the uh, I then worked at I did online training at UCLA, and I stayed on as a you know I've been an assistant professor there for a long time, and uh, I just stopped that actually. Uh, and I started my own treatment center, and oh, cool. the medical director you. of a number of centers. And then I just decided I wanted to incorporate a very strong holistic meets science uh, treatment center. So I've had one in Beverly Hills for quite a while. I think it was, uh, was going on eight years, eight or nine Oh, wow, years. congrats. But I got incredibly burnt out. 
Mm. Um, so much so that I sold my center. I left UCLA from the training part. I'm still faculty there. I'm still clinical faculty. But I, I left that to focus on transformational science. And wow, that's I love I'm. it. I'm a transformational scientist. I bridge the gap between creativity, consciousness, and neuroscience. Because to me, that's how I can really help people. I can help people so much more in helping them find themselves, discover themselves, expand their minds, and diminish their stress and build their resilience to have a better life than I can prescribing a med and keeping them in some state of moving them from a state of crisis to a state of stabilization, but not growth. And I just got tired of doing what I was doing. And I felt like this isn't my calling. My calling is something more expansive. And so, yeah. And did you, I, uh, did you feel like you were confined to that and doing that rather than, you know, it sounds like this, this calling of yours has been a manifestation of your cre creativity. I, I felt confined by the medical industry in many, many ways. Uh, one was I wasn't being creative. Uh, the other was there are so many legal and uh, ramifications, financial ramifications, and really insurance-based ramifications yeah. that were so, so limiting and so frustrating that I kept banging my head against a wall every time I wanted to help somebody. I, I just... It was too difficult staying in that system. Um, I, I, do I think a system needs to be there? Yes, some kind of a system. But, but I feel like the, the way our current healthcare is set up and the, the taxing, the, the way that healthcare providers are being taxed, like this is, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but at some point I needed to, to do a... Um, God, what do you call it? I, I would have called it maybe like a uh, a spiritual physical cleanse on myself because <laughs> very shamanic there. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, because like like in my training. No, I'm, I'm I am being honest. I mean, <laughs> I consider myself a shaman, an artistic shaman of sorts. So this yeah, is you know, that. yeah. Because in my training, I worked with a Sufi mystic leader. I I worked with in detox in Peru. I worked uh, on the Indian Health Service. I spent the last four months. Wow, fascinating! An Indian health shaman. So I have a good, a decent understanding of some aspects of global um, health, and and I just felt like the the spiritual. I was taking. Here's the best way to put it. Every time I saw a patient that was in distress, that was you know, I dealt with some heavy, heavy duty darkness. Oh, I can imagine. Psych deeply psychotic patients, deeply troubled, you know, individuals, um, people that had severe, severe trauma, um, hardcore addiction, suicidality, homicidality. I worked with some serial killers. I've wow. worked with like the darkest dark that you could see. And, you know, people used to ask me all the time, hey, do you bring that home with you? Like, like how do you oh do Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, how, you get yeah, the, how do you not? We, we just talked about this in a couple episodes back on getting hitchhikers, like spiritual hitchhikers that come with you. <laughs> Yeah. From practice, I mean, kind of, it gets into your own psyche of yeah. sorts. And I totally agree. And and I I was like, I was kind of cocky about it. I, I don't know if that's like being this 
I wasn't a jerk doctor, but I think part of like our training is to not, or at least back when I did it, was not to be so vulnerable because you had to be reassuring your patients. And if you were going to break down, how good of a doctor were you going to be to somebody else? So it was kind of like connection, the vulnerability of connection versus the reassurance that I've got this, don't worry, to create that, that relationship uh, with a patient. And, and so when, when people would talk to me about that, I'd be like, nah, it doesn't bother me. I'm fine. I can, I can, I can leave it at work or I can let it bounce off of me, which wasn't true, but I was, you know, I kind of martyred myself in a way to lead my life for my parents. So I was just like, sure. Okay. Bring on the dark stuff. Great. I'll work in the forensic crime unit. I'll work in the hardcore addiction center. I'll work. I'll do, I'll do all that. I'll open my own center and, and, and I'll do all of that stuff. But every single time I saw a patient that was really sick and, and really hurting and in a really dark place, for me to effectively work with them, I took on some of their stuff. And yeah. Time. yeah. The last psychiatrist I had on, uh, Dr. Uh, I forget his name, Baton, he taught, he wrote a book on coincidence. He said the same thing. He has been, and he's in his uh, 80s and he's still in practice and he's now having physical problems because he's been still bringing on those people's like energy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it got to the point where I won't get too much into it, but I, I Gabor Mate is a, a friend. Ah, yeah, Gabor Mate, yeah. He invited me to uh, a spiritual retreat, and um, I went, and the entire retreat was focused on uh, diminishing and removing the the darkness that we carry inside of us as healers. Oh, yeah. You know, it was a healers be healed kind of retreat, and it was uh, it was eye opening. I mean, it was fascinating because I think all of us in the healing profession take on this stuff. Oh yeah, and, definitely. And you could, you could describe self care as like meditation or yoga or stillness or nature or whatever, but at some point it can get so bad that you know you need to do some experiential work, like hardcore yep. experiential work. Yeah. So when you were in your burnout, because this is great, you, what you were talking about, you just outlined the Forbes article I had sent a clip, uh, and it just came out, I think, in July, and it was talking about physicians and burnout and suicide, and you outlined everything about the technology, about uh, do, dealing with the politics and the bureaucracy and the insurance companies and all of that, and that is what is causing everything. So at your burnout moment, what did you do? Like, did you just turn to spirituality or were you already doing comedy or? No, I mean, listen, when you're, anybody listening, they know this, when you're in burnout, you're, you're not, you can't think clearly. You've shifted from you know, you can start out like in, in, in your own crisis as a healthcare provider. I've been dealing with crisis with other people, but it's like when you're health, when you're unhealthy, you're in this crisis place and you move towards health. And as you move towards health, your mind expands, your consciousness expands, your, your ability to heal others is stronger because you're a stronger presence. You have more energy. You have more awareness. You, you're, 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 you're expanded in regards to what you can see. You can come up with creative solutions. You can come up with, with different ways of, 
of, of helping somebody and think of new things. When you're not in that space, when you're hurting yourself, whether it's the darkness you're taking on or the stress you've taken on or the hours that you're working or God forbid you have some personal stress on top of all of your work stress. Exactly. Um, yep. All of that stuff adds on to bringing you more and more and more into the state of crisis. And, and a lot of us don't even know we're in a state of crisis. We just know that we're either emotionally numb or we're cold and curt with other people. We're limited in our ability to think. We're do going day by day. Maybe, you know, I had nightmares. I, I was mm -hmm. constantly worried about what was happening with my patients. I was worried financially uh, about, you know, were we going to bring in more admissions? I, I was worried about uh, my personal life. I was worried about everything. And, and that worry became physical. And I ended up, I had a car accident where I had like a two millimeter disc herniation in my back that turned, oh, wow. Wow. It turned yeah. into a 10 millimeter disc herniation. I mean, I was walking around like an old man. Like I, I, I was a mess and, and I was no good for my staff. I was no good for my patients. I was no good for a lot of things because I was so limited in my ability to, to, cognitively be aware, emotionally be aware, spiritually be aware, medically be aware. So I had to do something drastic. And like, for me, it was, this is not the life I wanted to lead. You know, I had to, we, you know, you can call it soul search and call it whatever you want, but, uh, but that was not the place I wanted to be. And that was not the life I intended for myself. And so I thought long and hard, like, what is the life that I want and it, how far away from it am I? And what are the, what are the things that are getting in the way of that? You know, or, or just what served me previously, but isn't serving me now. And that treatment center was a great thing when I started it. And it was a great thing for a number of years and we helped a lot of people. And I'm very proud of that and very happy. And I was able to work with some great people. But at the time that I was really struggling and suffering, that was not the right thing for me. And I felt like I needed to sell the center. I needed to break the bonds or the ties that were keeping me limited in my thinking and, um, and completely focus on mind expansion and, and, and you know, be able to be a bigger presence in the world and, and impact people in a different way. Was it, was it only at the point when it manifested physically that you became truly aware of it and felt the need to do something about it? That's a great, great question, Sarah, because um, we're, I, I, listen, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I, I'll definitely speak for me. Uh, I was trained that I can handle anything as a healthcare provider. And yep. then I'm noble and I'm, I'm, I'm in the world to serve other people and I don't need to worry too much about myself. Exactly. That's very much in the nursing profession too, in healthcare in general. It's all about others and your patients. It's not about you. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I would, I would also argue that I think a lot of people go into the field. Um, yes, maybe because they want to be noble and they want to serve others and that's great. And they're empathic and philanthropic and, you know, whatever, whatever other word you want to use. But I think many people go into the healthcare field so the spotlight isn't on them. And so the spotlight is on other people. And mm -hmm. I don't want to call it caretaking for a purpose because generally the definition of caretaking is, 
is you expect something back when you take care of someone. Uh, but in this case, having a spotlight off of you is a way of caretaking um, by focusing completely on other people. So in that regard, when, when I'm dealing with these, you know, just, just a lot of stress and I'm feeling the stress, I couldn't think of a way out. I, I was just, it was the repetitive cycle day after day after day. I would go in my wheel. Yeah. And I would go, I would go into my car every day from home, drive to work. And all I could think about is what's going to go down the minute I walk in the door today. Who's going to have a major problem? How am I going to deal with it? Do I have enough like emotional resilience to deal with whatever's going to go down today? I dread this. Why am I doing this? How did I end up in this situation? What do I do now? You know, like, like it was just, it was just the worst conversation I was having with myself every single day that I was driving to work. Um, and it wasn't that we weren't helping people and it wasn't that we weren't at least, you know, somewhat successful. It, it, it was the toll it was taking on me to be that way. Uh, and, and it was exactly as you said, Sarah, it, 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 emotionally, I'm like, oh yeah, I, 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 I'm not supposed to think about myself. I will take this emotional pain spiritually. Yeah. I will take this pain limitations in the way that I think I'll take that lack of a ability to have a healthy relationship at home. Sure. I'll take that too. Um, you know, uh, uh, no time to do things that are meaningful or important to me. Sure. I'll take that. But it was only when I couldn't walk physically and I couldn't sleep at night that I was now speaking a language that I think related more to me as a physician and to me as a person that this has got to change. I don't know what else to do. This has got to change. I'm loving how this episode is so intuitive. You're like the perfect person to come on and talk about this uh, because you've dealt with it and you're coming out the other side and now you're helping people energetically, spiritually, in a comedic basis as well. So, um, because many people will take their lives and, and this is an epidemic now. I mean, there was that study at UCSD with Dr. Uh, Judy Davidson. She's a nurse uh, scientist. And so what she started noticing, there were four suicides, four nurse suicides within one year. So she started studying it. Nobody had studied any nurse suicides within 20 years yeah. uh, at all. And, and that's what I found so fascinating uh, with this program. And they went ahead and um, started to notice why didn't they study it? Because nobody cared. They're like, there was like one suicide within six months or a year. And they're like, oh, who cares? You know, uh, and, and that's what they were basically saying. But many of these people, they were having burnout in the beginning and then just got so despondent where they decided to unfortunately take their lives. So, um, and there's an increase in physician suicides as well at the resident level because of all the stress. And because I think you're right, because people have their own demons that they don't want to deal with and they're just going to deal with these other people now. You know, I'm going to deal with you because I don't want to go inside and deal with my demons. You know, I went to an exorcism once 
it was like a wacky exorcism guy. I just gotta say, that was such a strange sidebar. Right? As a point, okay? Because the guy goes around and he's like, okay, whose demons and am I gonna take out, you know, right now? And some people are like, no, I don't want my demons to go. You know, it's kind of the same thing. It's like people don't wanna deal with their own hurts, frustrations, traumas, whatever, but they'll go ahead and deal with other patients. Oh, now it's, it's just all about you. And, and so they don't have to think about themselves. But I think a lot of people in healthcare do that, especially nurses. You know, yeah, nurses, that's really interesting nurses about the concept of like displacing those, those feelings. Well, and, yeah, and nurses get so addicted to caring. I mean, they can work and work and work and, and then they'll start dating like hypochondriacs or other people <laughs> with problems. Okay, now I'm going to take care of you. You know, you're an alcoholic or an addict. Okay, yeah, I'll date you and take care of you and let's heal you now. You yeah, know? we're fixers. We're fixers. Yeah, it, it, it definitely carries over into your personal life uh, because you you're getting think about this, you're getting some kind of a reward from, um, from healing other people. There, there's a reward in, uh, I, I'm sure that there's, there's an endorphin rush in nursing just as much as there is in any other healing field. You, you, get, you get an endorphin rush, you probably get some dopaminergic tone reward, you feel good, you, you, you have a sense of purpose, you, you, you feel warm and just good inside. And especially because I would argue that, that many people that go into the healing field don't want to look at themselves. It's, it's a almost pre-programmed wiring towards I'm going to heal. I'm going to heal. I'm going to heal. Not me. I'm not going to look at myself. I'm going to heal. I'm going right. to heal. So then the, emo the, the balance of stress versus resilience, your stress grows and grows and grows and your resilience is wherever it is. And eventually your stress is going to be higher than your resilience. And so the, the first stage of that is where do I feel comfortable? I feel comfortable with sick people. Okay. Well, <laughs> there's no like- That's a really good point. <laughs> So, so it's like, you know, I feel comfortable with, with sick people. There's no Tinder at the hospital. So you're not going to date like your patients, right? So, so no, hopefully not. Right. Some people do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, which is in psychiatry, yeah. you can't do that. You just, you ask. <laughs> um, so, so what do you do? You look for people unconsciously or consciously that, you know, have some kind of need for healing. Now we all have some need for healing. So it's a universal concept, but they, they look for people that overtly have a need for healing so that you can maintain that same feel good reward that you've been getting at work because you don't want to look at yourself. And it's only when you start looking at yourself and you discover more of your, like you said, either your demons or your obstacles or your limitations or your patterns or your chaos or whatever, until you start opening up that world, you're going to continue down that same path of comfort. And that comfort is I'm going to hang with the sick. And that can include your boyfriend or your husband or your husband. You know? so. Yeah, wow. My my world feels kind of rocked because I, I don't think I it's making me really think about like my you know, my motivation for becoming a nurse and how this is applicable to me. And um, you know, it feels like this is like broad statements or generalizations. And like I'm curious, does does this mean that um I guess this that all like nurses 
altruistic um, or maybe altruistic motivation for becoming nurses is is uh, negative? No, no, not at all. But but what I'm saying, what I'm doing is I'm adding more depth yep. to mm-hmm. why people become what they are. This is specifically mm-hmm. nurses. This could be nurses. It could be doctors. It could be anybody. Yep. It could be anybody who's serving anybody. Yeah. There's there's always an hopefully there's always an altruism component. But almost like a bar graph, there's, there's different things that have different levels on them. And if altruism is the highest and, you know, there's a few other smaller things, then great. But I've seen and worked with so many people that are altruistic, but they also absolutely went into this field because they didn't want the spotlight on themselves. And if you are a person that's in burnout, if you are a person that um, knows somebody in burnout, if you're worried that one day you're going to be in burnout. And sorry to interrupt, how would you define burnout? I'm, I'm curious because it feels like that's just a, a word that keeps getting thrown around, you know, out there. How, how, what does it mean to you? I, I think there's various stages of it. So it, it, it's hard to just summarize it in like one sentence. But burnout is when the work that you're doing is taxing on you enough to where there are deep limitations in your life because of that work that you haven't been able to process or break through. So in essence, you're taking emotional, physical, spiritual hits for your work to the point where your work is either not enjoyable or it's incredibly limiting or it's really, really stressful or you're getting overwhelmed or you're finding yourself wanting to get away from work or you check out from work when you're at work <laughs> um, because you need distance just to be able to kind of heal and get through your day. That, that's the way I would describe it. Um, I think and- that's very well put. I've been through burnout at different cycles in my life where I've had to take breaks. And one of the breaks I took, I just started writing. You know, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I go, what have I always wanted to do? I always wanted to write. And I found a place where I can go and do that. Uh, And it really helped. I would write about work. So, (laughs) So it was kind of therapy, you know, comedically and stuff. But I think that's very, very well put. It feels like people, it's, it's, it reaches a threshold where all of a sudden people become aware of the burnout or it requires some drastic intervention or decisions like, you know, creating a need to create that distance. Is there, you know, a sort of gradient or way for healers um, to, to detect this sooner sooner so that it doesn't require such such drastic in, in intervention or life changes but i think some people can't even detect it like well, they're in, they're so deep in burnout that they don't know what to do i was yep. just going to say the population that you're talking about you know i didn't get a chance to read all the articles but i read one of them um the the this population the ones that do commit suicide or act or have a suicidal act those are the ones that are in such deep burnout, they have zero awareness. Yeah. It's like, I'm in burnout. I see no other way out there. I'm completely limited. I'm, I'm, I'm now being controlled by my job, by my sickness, by my stress, by my suffering. 
and the suffering is so bad, I can't do anything about it. This is the only way out. This is the long-term solution I need to solve my problem. And you have to be in a deeply dark place to get to that with no thought of solutions or no thought of awareness. Because if you had the awareness, hopefully, um, you, can, you can either find the help or you can find a way to expand your solutions and not feel so limited. When I was in burnout, I wasn't suicidal, but I was extremely limited so limited in my thinking. I just couldn't think my way out of it. I'm sure there were a hundred things I could have done, but I tried a few and they didn't totally, didn't really help um, smaller things. And then I came to the conclusion, like I I need a reset here. I, I, I need to now, fortunately for me, I was, Oh, I always had other career or calling aspirations Um, that were becoming bigger and bigger and bigger as I was going through life. And so I felt like a shift was definitely possible. And, uh, and so then I did it, but listen, if, if you wanted to be a nurse your entire life, I would still ask you why. And I would still ask, you know, is it all altruism or what other components are there? If you dig deep down inside and think about where this, this desire is coming from, uh, just make sure it's healthy. And if it's not a purely healthy desire, just look into that because that may be revealing. That's a great point that you bring up because I've encountered so many people. When I used to teach, I would ask my students, like, why are you becoming a nurse? And some would say, oh, because my dad died of cancer and this is why I want to do it. Or, uh, you know, and I, I read this one book where this woman felt that she needed to do that because someone in her family had cancer and this is what she was called to do, but she hated it, absolutely hated it. It was terrible for her. And then she ended up getting out of it and saying, you know, I don't need to do this because someone died in my family. You know, it's not a profession for everyone. Healthcare is not a profession for any, everyone. But I think another great point that you put in is to have that second mode of like any, that income, that calling, it's something else that you're building on that you have outside of your profession, whether it be healthcare or anything else. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Another thing is too, did any of your friends, I mean, did anybody say, hey, something's wrong with you, you need help, or are you okay? Mm. I was on my own. (laughs) I'd love to say, um, I mean, I'd love to say I I had, um, you know, I had a whole team of people that were helping me and they pushed me through it. It was great. But I mean, even like your nurses in clinic or anything, I mean, because to me, I'm pretty peppy person. And when I go to clinic, if, if my nurses know my moods. I mean, they're like, are you okay? Yeah. Are you? And it's usually male nurses that, that pick it up more than the females. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was working at Children's Hospital and there was a lot of political stuff going on there. And some days, you know, I would just be quiet. And one of my, the charges would come up to me and he'd be like, what's wrong with you today? I was like, nothing, nothing. I'm taking a vow of silence. What? A vow of silence? You don't take that to you. What's going on? What? You know, and I was like, no, I'm taking a vow of silence. I'm not going to talk to anybody today. I'm just going to lock myself up in this exam room. And this is where I'm going to do my work today. And so, um, and, and then, then the exorcism. 
And then I have an exorcism. <laughs> yeah. And so and now in my, my clinic in Palm Springs, when I walk in and if I'm too quiet, my nurse is like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. No, something is wrong. And he'll pester me until I tell him. And I was like, okay. And they know my mood changes. It's so crazy. And it's like, I mean, it helps to talk about it and stuff, but I, I mean, for me, it's like, for some reason, there's always that person that slaps me out of it because I don't know. <laughs> some, sometimes that's what it takes because we don't always have that self-awareness or I think we're really good at making up excuses or reasons why, you know, why today we feel this way, even though we also felt that way yesterday, but it must be, you know, it's for a different reason. And there's always, a, you know, a, a reason that we can validate for feeling the way we do. Yeah, I, I, for me, I, I had the self-awareness. Um, I, I, I'd been in the field a long time. I knew that I was in burnout. But some of this was absolutely my own doing, um, that I felt like I'm the leader of this company. You know, I'm like the CEO of this company, and I can't, I can't just break down here at this company. Like, I've got a lot of people relying on me. I've got a lot of patients relying on me. I've got, I got to be strong and I got to push through this. And, um, and I didn't want to, you know, I, I, I'm fairly sensitive in that I can talk to people and be like, yeah, I'm having a tough time or, you know, things are a little rough, you know, for me. But I think the culture, everybody knew, every company's got a culture. And the culture went from me being super energetic and being like giving, you know, a lot of talks and like, hey, there's new stuff. On, let's, let's add this to, you know, our curriculum. And let's like for me being super excitable to being more, hey, well, that's what I mean. Didn't, didn't people pick up on that and say, hey, this is not your normal behavior. What's going on? They picked up on it. But instead of, I think, instead of what's going on, they were like, okay, either they thought if he's really in dire straits, um, he'll, he'll talk to us and he'll say something. Or, you know, their jobs were reliant on me have you know putting it together getting it getting it going um and so i think some of them may not have felt comfortable asking me or they uh they didn't want to get involved in something that might be deeply personal for me i don't share a, i did it let me change that i do now i didn't share that much of my personal life um i only shared what i wanted people to know i didn't share a lot of the vulnerability of what was going on in my life at work. So I think that uh, it was more like, don't talk to me. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, we'll get through this. Don't, you know, it was more that coming from me than it was um, opening myself. Hey, everybody, I'm here to be helped. Help me. You know, like I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't willing to share that much at that time. It's like, who's going to go help the psychiatrist? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, or, you know, you look at social media and how so many of us interact these days and nobody puts out, or not nobody, but, you know, most people only put out what they want people to see. They don't, they don't, you know, it's not, it's not real and authentic and vulnerable. Yeah, you of know. Of course, yeah, it's all fake. I can talk about, I can talk about that topic for like 20 hours, but. Oh, yeah. It's a whole other. Yeah, I mean, I get asked a lot about, um about the digital brain and you know because i have a neuroscience background like digital distraction and what's happening to us as a result of having to make instant decisions 
you know, do we buy this? Do we watch this? Do we change this? What we, it, 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 there's definitely an impact on our brains. And I, I agree with what Sarah said that I, I feel like we're in a really repressed and authentic, it is, sorry, inauthentic culture right now. And we're not necessarily expressing who we really are or our natural ideas or our deep well of, of, of creative energy. Um, instead we're living in this, in this state of impression management. And, um, and in, in doing that, there's such a strong component of inauthenticity that it's hard to know who the real you is. And so many people need to discover who they really are to be aligned and authentic. And if they want to be fulfilled in life, um, if they want to feel meaning, because, you know, to me, happiness is nice. It's a, it's a state of happiness. But what, what really sets you into this deep relaxation, peace, ease, flow mechanics, it's, it's having meaning in your life. Yeah. And, and you're not going to have meaning if you're inauthentic. And so, it, to me, that's where I've shifted my life more towards how do you help people overcome repression, be more authentic and tap into their, their, that, that deep blend between consciousness and creativity. With, with entire generations now growing up in a reality of, of literally needing to make these instant decisions in various aspects of their lives, how do they, how do we even introduce the conversation or idea of meaning? Um, and, and where do they, where do they find that? What do you mean? Yeah. Like, like, are you saying that it's such a foreign concept to some people? I think so. I think that, you know, it, it's, it's just a different reality. Um, because it, like you had said, it's such a culture of inauthenticity and um, that, yeah, these, these generate the younger generations who like this, the need to make these instant decisions via technology and the way they interact with others is um, very technologically based that um, like, what does, I don't know, I'd be so curious to learn more about or hear your opinion on like, what, like, I don't know. I guess I'm not doing a great job of describing what I mean, but meaning to, I think to generations that didn't ha like knew something different than the technology that exists today um, is a whole different notion for generations that don't, don't know anything different. Well, I think to start off with the way kids are growing up today, let's start in childhood is very different than the way I grew up than the way Dr. Reef grew up and probably how you grew up, Sarah. It's like, I grew yeah. up, playing outside, riding bikes, create, creativity was key, and we were able to develop our own persona. So now, I mean, there's so much research and so much studies wherein teenage females predominantly, they don't know who they are anymore because they're stuck to their phones. You know, I mean, technology is kind of taking over that. So is that where you're going with that, where they don't even, there's such a huge disconnect now. Yeah, um, and where meaning is- yeah, where, where meaning and self-worth are really derived from, you know, metrics of likes and views and followers. And, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've, uh, I discovered something that I wrote about um, called fame addiction. And it, I treated a number of people at my treatment center 
you know, with that problem. And it's what is fame addiction. So what did they want? So I mean, here in Hollywood, it's like, I just explained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like, don't you know where I'm going to be? Is that what it is? <laughs> no, surprisingly, it started where I treated I treated celebrities and who had this issue and I'll get to the issue in a second, but like it started with celebrities. Then it became reality stars. Then it was athletes. Then it was YouTube stars. And now it's pretty much almost, it's a subset of the population. It's not like a huge number of people, but it's a subset of of the population where their need for impression management and online validation is so strong, is Mm -hmm. so intense to give themselves meaning and and to overcome the feeling of invisibility that their entire way of life is is the pursuit of validation despite any sense of growth within themselves so what ends up happening is these people are extremely emotionally reactive have very poor self-esteem are, I mean, take take the hardest people pleasers you know and multiply them by five, and that's what these people are like. Um, they they have they're very opportunistic. They look at new relationships as what's in it for me. So there's there's a lot of mm-hmm. like opportunistic thinking. There's a lot of fantasy. I call it fantasy brain, but like fantasy thinking. So so I've worked with a lot of people that that you know, and there, there's a lot of compensatory behaviors. It might be drinking or drugs or a lot of anger, a lot of rage because they don't know who they are. Um, and I and I've worked with a number of these people, and it started to catch on to where you know I've had a number of news media write up about about this concept. And you know I'll probably be doing more talks about it in the future, but it's. It's definitely something that you're seeing more and more in like the these gener- the newer generations because Sarah, you think about it, um, kids now are are being more defined by what kind of validation they get from their interactivity online. So if you're going to spend less time at family dinners, less time communicating directly with people, um, less time dealing with stuff that just happens in life that helps you build emotional resilience. Um, And you're going to spend more time interacting with people online and developing a persona that may not necessarily be you online. There's a lot more, there's a lot more ways you can get lost and not discover who you are. And then you end up 25 and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I feel kind of blah. Like the people I've worked with or I've helped or consulted with, or when I do events or I do talks, people come up to me after. And it's not, oh my God, dude, I'm a drug addict because I don't know who I am. No, it's not necessarily that. It tends to be more, you know, I'm just kind of blah. Like I'm kind of bored. Like I I just, I don't don't know what I'm supposed to do like right now. Like I'm in a job, but I just don't really dig it. I, um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, how do I find my purpose? That's, that's the number one question Mm -hmm. I get. Yeah. I think there's people that have done a lot of deep work that are like, how do I find my purpose? Because they're still in it. But the majority of people that ask me, how do I find my purpose are people that are very undiscovered. They're unexamined. Um, Mm -hmm. And often they're, they're bored. 
because there's so much stimuli that they've received online and so little stimuli that they've received in looking at who they truly are offline that there's this big disconnect. I think that's really well put. And I think people don't even know how to look at themselves anymore. Or how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, I did it intuitively. I mean, I, I had to do that when I pivoted. I was like, well, let me take this writing class. And then I became a voracious writer. And then it, it uh, morphed into my storytelling show where I was able to help other people. And then it morphed into this podcast now. And now it's morphed into me teaching storytelling and uh, franchising the show to different states. So it just gets bigger and bigger. And so there's a huge sense of purpose there. But a lot of people don't know how to do that. A lot of people don't know how to say, hey, I always wanted to try this. I'm going to go try this. Yeah. And I think what I was getting at was I'm, I'm of the millennial generation and, but for, for me, smartphones weren't a thing until I was, you know, late teens, like, you know, maybe just starting college. And so I had, I had known of a different reality, but for kids who are growing up these days where, you know, it, it, that you, they have phones way sooner and technology is all around us how, and so like I have the awareness and there's just lots of, I think, awareness externally around finding that stimuli offline. Um, but how our, our, the reality of our younger generations is, is based on um, that online stimuli. Mm -hmm. it, I feel like there's so much stimuli online and there's so little focused on experiential growth. And I've been so fortunate that um, even though I was, even though I was uh, uh, governed by my parents for so long and then governed by the medical industry, um, <laughs> I dabbled in so many other things. Like I, I've, I've acted in like Indian Bollywood-ish kind of movies. <laughs> um, I've done stand-up comedy under an alias name for years because I didn't want my parents or like the medical industry to know. So I had a fake. <laughs> um, I've been a, a professional dancer and toured with like artists in Vegas. Um, I, I've, I've studied improv for like four or five years and, and applied that to patients even, um, teaching them improv technique. Uh, I've acted in a number of, of movies and TV shows. I've written for, for projects. And the reason I say that is... Um, I had the answers the entire time. Mm -hmm. I just see it. You know, you don't have to be like super skilled at something. I was just fortunate that um, I live in LA and, and LA. Yeah. <laughs> you can write something. You can actually, you know, things. Yeah. Happen. It's, it's kind of, you know, living in LA, we are so very fortunate that you say that. And because there's so many opportunities here. I mean, you could go to Central Casting if you want, just take a, a photo down and boom, you could be working on a movie. I know a guy who, in a couple months, he's like, oh yeah, I've starred in like 30 different movies as an extra, you know? And he's like, it's great. You know, he was in between jobs and stuff. I mean, we're so fortunate to live in Los Angeles. I've had several different gigs, writing gigs. I've done performance as well. And I've done stand-up comedy a little bit. It's just... 
I don't want to say easy, but the opportunities are there if you want to take them. I mean, they are very, very challenging to do, but um, it's great to get out of your box and to experiment that, experiment with that. Yeah, the reason, the reason I mention it is that um, I found it so powerful to explore your creative expression, to help become more authentic, to help discover who you are, to help build a strong sense of connection to yourself as yeah. well as to other people. When you partner dance, I mean, you're having a mini relationship with someone. Yeah. And your energy is transferred and your ability to connect and do you make eye contact and and how do you how do you build the symmetry in connecting with somebody? For men, a lot of men are a little lost right now and, and you have to be a leader on that dance mm-hmm. floor. You have to test your ability to lead. For women, so many women now are more empowered during the day and at work and, and doing everything that they would want to do. But then they can't shut it off. Right, so you, true. Do you trade, you know, equality or power for femininity? Like, there's a lot of power in femininity. That you know, that that when I when I work with people, that um, that I've said, you know, I want to try some experiential work with you. I'll get people like I developed an entire platform of spoken word, art therapy, dance mm-hmm. therapy, music therapy, improv, like uh, dramatic work, character work, uh, because tapping into someone's innate sense of self, utilizing the metaphor of creativity and consciousness is extremely powerful. So and, powerful. And so, you know, now I'm developing courses and live events and I'm doing speaking gigs on this and I'm doing a little bit of coaching with, you know, advising and coaching. But I just think it was so powerful for me. It's so powerful for the people that I've been able to help that uh, I want to spread that word more. This concept of creative expression. Um, I, I was talking to a nurse or uh, someone the other day who was considering nursing. And she said that she decided to not pursue it because she felt it didn't speak to her, her creative side. And it sounds like you had fought a bit going into the medical field for that reason. It, and I think that some, it's interesting because I think some nurses consider the profession and the job to be very creative, whereas others feel very suppressed by like a lack of creativity. Um, it was, so when you ultimately went into the, like the medical profession, did you find that there was room for creative expression within the role in your work? Or did you have to supplement and complement your work as a medical professional with creativity in other ways? So I would answer that by saying there's theory and there's, there's practical application. So when I was studying, um, you know, when I was doing internal medicine, like my, my work in, in my training, it was really cool. Like I, I loved doing procedures. I loved, you know, during my training period, when I was studying psychiatry, I was looking at psychoanalytical theory, psychodynamic, relational theory, existential theory. Um, what's the difference between like a, a, a serial killer's brain and a normal <laughs> a regular person's brain? What's the difference in a man and a woman's brain, a, a gay straight brain? Like, it was so cool. Like, it, it was just really, really, really interesting. And I was loving the training. Uh, but then, you know, Prozac hit. 
And all of a sudden, <laughs> the concept of like antidepressant therapy and anti-anxiety therapy, and I'm not saying it doesn't work. I would use it, especially when somebody's in crisis. Um, but there's so much more to the human brain. There's so much more to the human condition than just pharmaceuticals. And it mm-hmm. felt like the training and then the practical application of that training was rooted in here's everything you're going to study and here's how you're going to apply it. You know, it's like, we're going to give you vast amounts of amazing training, but then when you're going to practice, it's the power of the prescription pad and and you're going to contain your patients and in the hospital or treatment center, you know, you're the, you're the person, you're the one who's going to, you know, solve everyone's problems by prescribing this medication. I was just like, God, I learned such really great stuff and I can't apply it anywhere. Like, what is this? So I, so I think that the concept of, 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 and I can only speak for me, right. But, but the concept of creativity in healthcare is there. It's, it's, it's around, but it's, how do you, how do you apply it as a health practitioner? I think that's excellent. So wrapping up, what would you, if somebody is in crisis, if somebody is in burnout mode, if someone is, of course, thinking about suicide, I'm going to put the 1-800 number at the end of this podcast if anybody needs to access that. What would you advise them to do to break out of that? Like, what are some steps? I think the first question is to admit that you are in burnout. Um, look, look at where you are in your in your job. Do you dread going to work? Are you constantly stressed out? Are you overwhelmed? Um, are you withdrawing as a person? Are you more disconnected? Are you more isolative? Are you more angry or rageful? Are you, are you resentful? Like what? You know, look at look at uh, where you are. What state of mind you're in. Uh, and are, is it emotionally taxing? That's how I looked at it. And that, that would be the first thing. The second thing is you have to understand and be aware that burnout means you're probably not firing on all cylinders. And I don't mean that in that you're crazy or anything like that. It just means that you're in survival mode when you're in burnout and you're limited in your ability to see solutions. That was really hard for me, but it, I think it, there's a lot of truth to that, that. I think that's a great point. You know, you're, you, you may be an incredibly smart person. You may have more neurons and the more hyper-connected neurons than the average person, but it doesn't mean when you're in burnout that you're seeing things correctly. You may not be seeing things that, you know, either as they are or seeing things that are possibilities. Your ability to see possibility is less. Um, and so that's the second thing, just knowing that. And then the third is self-care. And when I say self-care, I don't, it's a cheesy kind of term, I guess, but it's an important term. But, you know, self-care is anything from nature. I can't tell you the power of nature. Oh, yeah, nature's great. You know, I, I've made a very concerted effort to, the first thing, I, I'm, not a, I'm not generally a morning person. I don't know, you know. Uh, maybe nurses are more morning people than, you know, not, but (laughs) depends who you ask. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Depends. Yeah. I I was just never a a a. 6am, 7am person. So the first thing I would do when I woke up is I would force myself into nature and I would, uh, I would just sit outside 
or I take a walk on the beach or I go do something or I walk somewhere to a park or something. And eventually that turned into meditating while I was out in nature. Then it was stretching and meditating while I was out in nature. Then it was stretching, meditating and doing like tapping and energetic exercises while I was out in nature. And, and it, it, you know, it continues to kind of build on itself. And the hope if you're in burnout is maybe some kind of disruption of your, your daily habit and system will give you not, and it, it won't give you like, it won't pull you out of the situation, but it'll give you clarity to see possibilities to pull yourself out of the situation. Um, and then the third is if you've done that and you, uh, you've employed a significant amount of self-care, you see, you realize you're in burnout, you see that you don't have that possibility to think about things, then you need help. Yeah. And that help might start with talking to a couple of friends or family members or whatever and admitting, Hey man, I'm in burnout right now. And I, I don't think I'm seeing things clearly. Um, can I just tell you where I'm at with stuff? And, and if, if your thoughts are, you're bummed out or you're stressed, you know, maybe you can start working with your friends on possibilities. But if you're thinking you're suicidal, you know, I'm not your doctor. I'm just on a podcast, but, uh, but you, know, you got to put the disclaimer in, but you, uh, that's when you need to see a professional, you know, whether, whether it's, um, somebody at the hospital or it's a group or it's a private therapist or it's a, a medical physician or it's a psychiatrist or it's a suicidal hotline or it's whatever's works for you. You need to, to reach out to people that can help because, you know, what I tell people is that um, usually suicide is a long-term solution to a short-term problem. And if you can work through that short-term problem, maybe it's not really as bad as you think, but the burnout is clouding your ability to see possibility. That's an excellent point. I always thought it was weird that we see companies like Google now and Amazon, they have therapists there to where their uh, employees can go ahead and access them at any time. But hospitals, they don't have that, which is so bizarre to me. It, it's like a nurse could be putting a patient in a body bag in one room and then uh, discharging a patient in the next room, but you're supposed to be neutral. You know, you're not supposed to show emotion going from one or the other. Um, you know, some hospitals do offer uh, programs or retreats. I know Children's Hospital used to for their intensive care uh, nurses where every so often they would go away to a retreat and they would have therapists there and they would help them uh, work through stuff. But technically, there's none of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that... Um a couple things. The first is that I think at Google, there's, there's going to be more technological advancement and I think more understanding or awareness of, mm -hmm. um, of how somebody's mental health, lack of creativity, lack of innovation, lack of inventiveness, which all occur when you're stressed or occur when you're not in a good place with your mental health. Uh, is going to impact the bottom line. It's going to impact your ability to do a great job at your work. Uh, for some reason, maybe it's just more understanding technology and technological stress, which is a real thing. 
perhaps Google is more aware of that. In hospitals, you would think, well, you're surrounded by sickness, of course you're gonna know or have the resources made available to your staff as well. But I can tell you that at most hospitals I've worked at or most training centers I've worked at, there's a lot of help and assistance and resources for students, for medical students, for, for the nursing students that I saw, for, 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 for people that are still in training, even for the residents. There, there's, there, but once your staff yeah, there's nothing. I didn't see much. And no. and then you've got diversion programs, right? So like if if somebody is got if somebody has a mental health problem, there's something called co-occurring disorders or dual diagnosis where a lot of people have mental health problems will compensate in some way. Maybe they have a ton of anger or a ton of stress or a ton of something. So they might start popping pills or they might start drinking too much or they might start smoking a lot of weed or they might doing something to offset the suffering and the feeling that they have, that feeling state that they have. So now you have you have doctor diversion programs, at least on the doctor side of it. Um, I'm sure nursing does too. I just am not as aware of it. But uh, if you were in that program, you're now part of a system. Right. And a lot of doctors are scared of being part of that system. And I'm sure nurses are as well, where you don't want to be outed as somebody you know, nurse Jackie, the, you know, like you, you exactly, exactly. Now you're stigmatized. Yeah. Who wants to be labeled? So people will stay away from those programs. So now you're stuck in this, this situation where you're like, okay, I know I'm not doing that great with my mental health, but this job is very important to me. The salary is very important to me. What I'm doing is very important to me. And yeah, I could go get some professional help, but you know what? I don't want to be labeled there. And you know what else? I'm working so hard. I don't have time to go see a therapist on the outside. So what ends, or, or I don't have the resources to do it. So then what ends up happening is it just gets worse and worse and worse and it snowballs um, because you don't want to be labeled or outed in the system. Yeah. The, the good news is that it's not just Google, you know, the, the Googles of the world that are recognizing this and there are more and more companies or and tech-based companies that are, cropping up that are focused really just on this. I know, um, like, uh, came across at a conference, um, there's one called Ginger, and it's it's an app, and it's really, really accessible and very, very private. Um, there's another one called Octave, and so it's just reassuring to see that there, there are things happening to, to provide more resources for anyone that might need the help. Yeah, and I, I, I'm glad, and I, and in a lot of ways, I hope that the medical industry cares for its own uh, in, in a way that's consistent with the advancement of our technology, because technology stress is, is a real thing. No, it's huge. Well, this has been such an interesting discussion, very intuitive. Uh, you were the perfect person to have on, Dr. Reef. <laughs> Yeah, this has been so insightful. I'm so excited to, you know, I'm over here taking, trying to take as many notes as I can. I'm so excited to listen to this. Yeah. Um, you know, and ev yeah. everything you've talked about is so applicable to nursing and how we can manage ourselves and our careers to ultimately stay in our careers. And um, I anticipate it's something I'm going to consistently refer back to and uh, really look forward to following your work. Thank so you. Dr. Reef, uh, oh, go ahead and say thank you. 
<laughs> I'm gonna get another bad review. You cut people off. So, <laughs> <laughs> so where can we, uh, if anybody would like to get in contact with you, your services, where can people find you? Yeah, so I've made this big shift in my life, and and I really get, especially uh, people in healthcare, right? Like, cause I cause I lived it, and so I get it. So if anyone is burnt out or is you know suffering or wants to add more creativity to their work or really wants to explore that whole framework of science and consciousness and creativity, um, they can definitely look at some of my work. So. Uh, I, uh, the easiest way to reach me is my website is reefkareem.com, R-E-E-F-K-A-R-I-M.com. You can always email me reef at reefkareem.com. Uh, if anyone's interested in like, you know, working with me in some capacity, I have a, a product that's going to be coming out. Um, I'm working on a book deal right now and, uh, I'll have an online course and I'm going to start doing retreats like workshop retreats with this and eventually live events. Um, so that's, that product is called master your madness and, uh, I love it. mastery, yeah. your madness, master, your madness, master, your madness. It's, it's going to be super cool. It's about shifting your chaotic madness into creative madness. And I love it. it employs neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, consciousness, and spiritual healing. Um, really all the things that I'm good at, I think, uh, or at least I've been trained to do. And, uh, you know, it's conveyed with a little bit of comedy too, because, you know, that's, that's our thing. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, re reaching out to me, I'll have a, a, a talk show component that goes along with it. And we're just going to try to reach as many people as we can to, you know, help them to overcome some of the, the stressful ways that we have now with the human condition and where we're at in society and give people more meaning. Well, thank you so much for being on Dr. Reef Cream. It's been an amazing podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah Gray from Trusted Health. Until next time, nurses and hypochondriacs, see you later. If you or someone you know has been contemplating suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Trusted Health, empowering nurses to discover opportunities that fit their unique experiences, preferences, and goals. Go to www.trustedhealth.com. Click on the link at the end of this podcast. Fill out some basic information about your preferences and qualifications, and you can get started viewing job matches personalized for you in minutes. Join Trusted. They're not just an agency, they're a movement. <laughs> <laughs>